This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Dr. Annalinda Amira Augustin about her really fascinating book titled South Yemen's Independence Struggle, Generations of Resistance, published by American University of Cairo Press in 2021. The book presents a bold ethnographic account of a persistent Arab uprising, in a rarely studied studied corner of the Middle East, um, and rarely studied in this way in particular, because it does involve um, a massive amount of effort on your part to have gone in and found out in such detail and with such consideration of the different ways in which um, communities in Yemen are thinking about the past, applying that to the future, how that's influencing politics. Um, So it's a really interesting book I found, not just for kind of the immediate story it's telling of um, the Southern movement, but also of kind of the wider uh, discussion or the wider contribution it's making to how we think about studying um, through sociological or ethnographic methods, um, how we think about uh, places that receive very specific and probably limited kinds of scholarship. Um, So whether or not you as the listener uh, have a huge background in Yemen or not. Um, I think this is actually a really interesting book for a number of reasons. Um, And so I'm really excited to welcome you, Amira, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Miranda. Thank you. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself um, and perhaps more than I would usually ask from an author, sort of your relevant backgrounds and positionality that come into this work and explain why you decided to write the book? Yeah. So, um, actually, I I studied Middle Eastern studies uh, at Leipzig University in Germany, and in 2007, I went to Aden to study a semester abroad at Aden University, and this was actually the year when the Southern Movement came into being. And um, so I came into contact, you know, I heard about the protests, people were speaking about the movement and everybody was a bit, you know, uh, excited about it. And everybody was like waiting, what is going on, what is happening? And this was actually the start for me to to delve into this movement, to, to um, be more interested into the story, why this movement came into being. And um, to speak a bit about my own background, because this explains my huge interest into this movement, um, 
my father is from South Yemen, from Abyen, and my mother, she is from um, Eastern Germany. So I was born in the 1980s in the GDR, in the German Democratic Republic. And um, so uh, the German Democratic Republic and also South Yemen, which was the People's uh, Democratic Republic before 1919, both of these states merged in uh, together with their neighbor countries into unified countries. So um, for me, you know, it, it was my per personal history, also kind of my family history to learn more about South Yemen. And I saw that many young people were... Um, identifying with this new movement and they were saying, yeah, we lost our state and the PDOY and we want uh, our state, uh, we want the state back. And, you know, they, they were so much identifying with the state, although they were born, born in the 1990s. So they never witnessed the state before uh, 1990. So I was asking, yeah, I was just, I was so interested, where does this knowledge coming from, the knowledge about the state, um, why do they identify with the state they never experienced themselves? Because as I said, I was born in the GDR and I have few memories um, about the GDR because I was a very young child at that point at unification. So um, I was interested in this in the story and then I started to, you know, to study more about it. But I also learned that there must be more. So I asked why is there an independence movement in South Yemen that wants the, the, the former state or the re-establishment of the former state, the PDRY, while at the same time in, in Eastern Germany, we do not have an independence movement. So I was really interested to, to study the movement and to understand what was going on in South Yemen and also to see the differences. So uh, yes, my, my own biography is very much interlinked with this topic. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it really uh, highlights kind of how like not how we shouldn't take for granted some of these things like oh well of course there's independence movements like well hang on a second well why what what is going on here um i think that's a really kind of powerful intervention in this case it's just sort of examining something that could be taken for granted um and so i'd love to kind of uh continue to set the foundations of this and could you tell us a little bit about the methods used in the book, the focused ethnography and the types of sources you worked with? Yeah, so um, actually when I went, um, or I have... No, I have to say it, it was like I, I got a PhD position at Marburg University in Germany. So I had um, the chance to go to field research in 2013 and 2014 uh, for my PhD thesis. And the problem at the time was that normally nobody was allowed to go to field researches to Yemen anymore because it was seen to be too dangerous to do the field research there. So I was lucky that they allowed me to go but I always felt that okay maybe in one or two weeks they will call me back to Germany and I have to stop my research here so I was a bit um, under pressure and I had to use uh, methods to be really fast in 
taking a lot of data. So I used focused ethnography. So this is a time and data intensive method consisting of multiple short-term field visits, uh, which build on background knowledge of the field. So I... I collected a massive amount of data. For example, I took um, more than 1,300 pictures, uh, photographs, and and videos that uh, from from gatherings and meetings, from mass demonstrations, protests of the southern movement, and um, I uh, recorded, uh, yeah people interviews i did interviews with individuals with smaller groups i did also focus group discussions with people uh, with around 30 people so i collected around uh, 40 hours of of interviews and uh yeah and i i bought a lot of newspapers uh, that were coming out at at the time when I was in in Aden and I took um, I bought uh, textbooks for example schools from schools that uh, to see how um, how uh, the state is dealing with the history of unification, the time uh, afterwards, or even with the time before unification. So um, when I was in Aden, I I was just collecting. Um, yeah, I, I was just collecting whatever I could <laughs> get uh, to be on the safe side and to have a, a lot of material that I uh, was able to um, analyze later later on when I was back in Germany. Hmm. I think that's a really useful kind of practical thing to be aware of um, as, you know, not all field work is, has the same kinds of accessibility. You know, some places have more complications than others. Um, So thank you for explaining that to us. Um, I'd love to kind of then get into the sort of content, if you will, of the book, though I do actually really appreciate that you talk so much about methods in your book. I think that's um, a really important part of the book and makes it really helpful for readers. Um, But we have talked about that a little bit. So I'd love to talk about South Yemen's independence struggle, um, per the title. And you focus primarily on the Southern movement. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what it is and how it came into being and specifically why something that is talking about a country that hasn't existed since for, for a while, uh, since the uh, early 90s, why was this movement created in 2007? Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, so I try to be very <laughs> short. So uh, there was unification in 1990. So uh, North Yemen or the former Yemen um Yemen Arab Republic and the People's Democratic Republic unified into the Yemen uh, Republic or the Republic of Yemen. And um th- but there this all this unification process was really difficult and rushed and there were a lot of issues that were not really thought about and there were almost two states existing next to each other there were two armies and uh, the leadership of both countries just um, joined together into one um, yeah presidential council or leadership so there were a lot of problems and there were the also, the problem that in South Yemen there were the, the population in South Yemen is um, lower, much lower than the population in the north, and there were the uh, the uh, 
the elections in, in 1993 and it became apparent this difference between the, the population in the north and the south. For example, the Socialist Party, the Yemeni Socialist Party that ruled in South Yemen, uh, lost its prominent position because they did not receive uh, a lot of votes uh, in the north, for example. So, and there were also other problems that uh, southern politicians felt um, marginalized in the unified state, and so it started to be. Yeah, a difficult situation in the early 1990s and uh, the first clashes between the northern and the southern army began in 1994 and then um, in April 1994, at the end of April. And there was, yeah, a war began and um, this war was lost by the southern faction. And after this war, a lot of uh, southern soldiers and uh, military personnel lost their jobs and were, um, yeah, were put into retirement. So they were forced into retirement. It was said, you have to stay at home. You will get a small salary, but stay at home. And um, there were... Um, Later on, there were smaller protests because the retirement was not enough. There were also other issues because in many uh, higher positions of the state or in the governorates, um, northerners were installed and southerners felt more and more felt that they were marginalized um, in their yeah, part of the country. And in 2007, uh, the protests began to become yeah more yeah huger bigger and uh, greater and people went to the streets and they were asking for more retirement because uh, yeah it was their pensions were not enough anymore to feed their families um, people uh, asked to get also more from the incomes from the oil, which is mainly situated in the south, in Hadramaut. And uh, there were also a lot of problems with land issues in South Yemen. For example, in the socialist PDY, there was a, a lot of state land, and this land was taken by um, influential personnel from the northern regime, and people just felt that everything was taken from them. The big question is why did the movement became so huge in 2007 and what happened in the time between uh, 1994 and 2007? So first of all, I think the whole marginalization process was... Um, it, did, it didn't start all with 1994. It, sometimes it slowly started. For example, retired persons or, or people who were forced into retirement, sometimes they were taken back to their uh, positions. Uh, they lost their ranks. They were put into a lower rank and then they were um, uh, forced again to retirement. But then the, the state paid them less than before. So there were a lot of issues. But you know, in 2007, people said it's enough. And I think, or this is one of my major argumentation in the book, is that in 2007, it was also the younger generation that now became um, in a certain age uh, where they were able to go to the streets and also demonstrate. Like, 
uh, young people, students who were unemployed, who couldn't find jobs, they joined the movement. And I think this was the, the point why the movement became so huge at that time. Mm, that's really um, key to think about kind of the almost the trickle of it, right? The, the first, the fact of reunification, but then kind of the promises and then some time for those promises maybe to no longer satisfy people or changes in terms of people aging and that changes um, kind of what they want from the state or what they feel like they're owed. Um, so I think it's a really interesting example because um, often there are protests like right at the beginning of something, uh, but it's actually really helpful to kind of understand that it's not an instant thing. It's not, well, if there aren't protests in the first 12 months, then you're fine. It's like, no, hang on. There's a whole bunch of other things happening here um, that can take time. So thank you for kind of tracing that out for us um, to see. And I, I'd love then to kind of explore a little bit of kind of the Southern movement further, right? Well, you talked at the beginning about uh, nostalgia of young people, but for something that they hadn't experienced themselves, right? You've talked just now about people who had been in South Yemen wanting kind of some amount of inclusion or maintenance or economic security, etc. Um, and those are obviously quite different experiences, right? One group that has experienced it and one that hasn't. Um, so is there a way that we can talk in kind of broad terms about what those involved in the Southern movement want or are broadly nostalgic for? Um, or is it something we have to think about purely as two separate generations? You know, the Southern movement is, for me, it's, it's, there is this really strong intergenerational component in this movement. So, um, I, I think it's, it's difficult to understand this movement without this generational, um, yeah, point because you have the older generation. They know how the life was uh, before unification, and they are telling the younger generation. In the past, we had uh, free healthcare, we had good schools. Every school child uh, was in school. They learned. We had good uh, education. After your studies, you got a state employment, um, or you went to the military, or you you know you got a job. Um, um, women tell a lot of these stories that uh, women were empowered. They had the chance to get involved into different positions. They were empowered um, to to work and to be active in 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 the society. They were visible in the streets, etc. So, and also the question of equality that. Um, you know, in the society, you have uh, black people, you have uh, uh, more privileged people, but at, at the time, in the socialist time, these differences were not accepted and people were seen as equal. So people look back to these accomplishments um, of the PDY uh, era and they tell these stories to the young generation and young people, they, they think like, okay, so we feel like we went back instead of, um, um, yeah, getting further into, you know, development. We feel like we are, we are 100 years back or 50 years back. Some activists said, uh, or told me like, we feel we lost so much, like the, the things our parents had, like the accomplishments, um, or the life our parents had and, and um, for example, there were also a lot of uh, South Yemenis, they could study abroad. And young people say, okay, we cannot even 
go for a visit abroad uh, and we cannot study and we, we even struggle to get a, a place at university here in Aden. So, um, so people uh, look back to the socialist welfare state and they miss the state. So this kind of nostalgia is... Um, transmitted from the older generations to the young, but it's also the young people who study the history, who uh, listen to the older people, who write articles for journals about the accomplishments of the past, about companies that existed in Aden, but that were uh, uh, exploited and closed down in the 1994 war. So there is this process of... Um, yeah, of of um, looking back and also the wish for having a better future. So young people um, see what what happened in the past and what the the older generations had, and they wish to have such kind of life or even better in the future. So this is um, for them. This is is the yeah the objective or the big goal to reach when they, you know, protest and say, we want uh, our independent state, we want to reestablish our state, because we think we could have a better life in an independent state. And how then does that nostalgia sort of translate into types of resistance? Is that primarily coming from the young people? Is that coming from the older generation? You know, how, how does this sort of uh, generational dialogue in a lot of ways move from nostalgia to forms of resistance. So in my book, for example, I explain that after the war in 1994, there um, people spoke at home in, in, you know, in, it was not public. They didn't speak in public about what happened in the war in 1994, how was life before 1990. So they spoke at home with the younger generation. And it was like a hidden transcript. It's this, that's a term that um, comes from James Scott. So it was like a hidden transcript. And this became public with the protests of the Southern Movement. Then the people felt like now is the time to speak, to speak out what, what happened and what our uh, claims are. Before, before um, or after the war in 1994, it was a very repressive environment and it was very difficult for people to speak about um, their grievances or even even about uh, the, accom the accomplishments of the PDY. So you could not you could not speak about it in public because there was a danger that you know you are maybe taken by policemen or you know you're tortured, taken away. There is um, an example, there there was a university professor at Sana University, but uh, he came from the South, and after the war in 1994, he, he said that, uh, or he wrote in an article, in a newspaper article, that, um, uh, or he applied the term internal colonialism to South Yemen, and he was taken away by the security for... Uh, a couple of months and then he was tortured in that time and uh, yeah it was it was a very repressive environment after the 1994 war and even in the f first years of the sudden movement it was not easy to 
speak about what was happening and um, also to go to protests. The protests were uh, crushed down by the regime and police was, you know, they were uh, shooting the protesters. They were really brutal against the protesters uh, in the beginning. So um, it was not easy to yet yeah, raise these issues. That seems pretty reasonable uh, in that sort of environment, that it would not be the easiest thing to talk about. Um, and yet you do talk that, um, obviously, as the Southern movement um, gains some momentum, these debates, these discussions, this resistance moves from being purely sort of within the home in private spaces to also being in places, for example, like schools or other public sites. Um, so how are those sorts of places, um, areas where counter-narratives and resistance um, can be possible? So when the sudden movement emerged, as I, as I said in the, at the beginning in 2007, it was really difficult to uh, um, to raise or to to raise protests or to be, you know, to raise the grievances, to say there are difficulties. It, it was a really harsh and repressive environment. But with um, 2011, the, um, the regime of Ali Abdullah Saleh began to topple down. And this was also the moment when protesters uh, could m more easily um, start to to use different spaces open spaces public spaces uh to raise their issues to raise their grievances and um uh, their resistance so for example uh the southern movement began to establish different um spaces in public squares for example there were the the revolution squares as they call it uh in the different um uh, squares and areas in Aden, for example. So people uh, were meeting there uh, in the afternoon. They were discussing uh, grievances, politics, current uh, politics, and they were exchanging in the streets. And afterwards, they were walking around for a protest with the southern um, flag, with the flag of the PDOY. So they began to use these public spaces to raise their uh, resistance, to raise their protests. And um, the movement began became more and more visible in public spheres. The same for uh, the flag. You saw the fl and after 2011, the flag of the PDOY became so omnipresent in, in public spaces in South Yemen. And you saw it even on public uh, buildings, sometimes it was painted on schools. And yeah, even teachers, for example, the problem is, I, I told you in the beginning uh, that I also uh, bought school books, textbooks. Um, in textbooks, for example, there's nothing, there's no single word uh, about the PDOY. So the, the history of the PDOY uh, is totally, yeah, erased from, from textbooks. You cannot find any information uh, about it. The same for the 1994 war. You do not read anything about the grievances in South Yemen. So 
teachers felt there is there is a lack of information in textbooks and there was the glorification of Ali Abdullah Saleh even until 2015 when the, the war in Yemen began. You still saw Ali Abdullah Saleh in textbooks, although he was already um, gone since 2012. So, uh, or 11 even. And the the problem was teachers saw these problems and they, you know, they have students in their classes and students, students ask, but this is not what we learn in the streets. This is not what we learn at home from our families. This is something totally written, a totally different history in these textbooks. This is not what we learn at home. And of course, there were discussions also in schools and teachers explained and it, it depends or it depended on on the teacher. Like, for example, if a teacher was also a Southern Movement activist or proponent of the Southern Movement, this teacher was willing to explain to the students what happened in the 1994 war, what how was um, the time before unification. But uh, it it depended also on yeah how yeah let's say how um, willing they were to yeah to to take this risk to speak about this time because teachers in Yemen are paid by the state by the government so or by the ministry of education so if there were you know problems or some someone was saying this teacher is a southern movement activist so people were afraid that they maybe could lose their jobs so in some areas, for example, rural areas, it was often easier for teachers to speak about the past and, and uh, what is going on in the country than maybe in uh, cities uh, like Aden. Because in, in the city you have uh, students from so many different backgrounds and the, it, was more dif it was difficult, a bit difficult to to raise these issues. But in rural areas, it was quite common, I think, to, yeah, to raise the issues of the Southern Movement, the grievances, etc. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That makes sense. Um, I was wondering if you could, you've kind of told us about the, the impact of the textbooks, um, which I think is really fascinating. Um, but what, are the, what were some of the other ways that uh, the Yemeni government worked to create the idea of no, everyone's all together. We're all one country, um, right? Some of it is obviously repressing um, speech and repressing history and having a very specific narrative in educational settings. Um, were there other sort of ways in which the Yemeni government tried to kind of create this idea of unity? I think first of all, I, I have to say that unity was a was popular among the PDY and the uh, YRR population. So. Um, the, the politicians of both countries used the unity discourse um, as an instrument for inter-regime competition and not as a real policy objective. So uh, this, I think this is important to, to understand the whole context. So there was this, this unity discourse is older 
uh, than yeah unification. So it already existed a long time before. And um, after the 1994 war, uh, the the unity narrative became dominant and it was created by the Saleh regime. Uh, it said that uh, unity only had advantages for the entire population. Uh, this was said in speeches, for example. Uh, unity uh, was tantamount for economic development and it was seen as a source of freedom and democracy. But um, it, this discourse overshadowed uh, obvious defects stemming from the unification process and like the, the weak econom, uh, economy and also the lack of development, lack of demo, uh, democratic principles and freedoms. Um, all these problems were not really uh, mentioned in this discourse. So, uh, And part of this uni uh, unity narrative was also the, the growing glorification of Saleh and his regime. So this discourse was uh, used for regime building to legitimize his authoritarian rule. It was used in speeches and uh, yeah. And if someone, for example, tried to raise uh, the grievances in, in South Yemen or address the grievances, he was criminalized. Um, uh, with betrayal, or the people told, uh, or said he, or he was accused to be a separatist, or um, of being a separatist. So it was really difficult to redress grievances in South Yemen, and um, so the whole history was denied and silenced in speeches, in public uh, spaces, in textbooks. So I think, and uh, what I found was that textbooks were so yeah th i think this was the the most um omnipresent uh means to show that that the history was silenced the former history or the history of the pdoy i mean it's literally in black and white on the printed page right not mentioned yeah um, yeah so I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned um, an answer or so ago about kind of 2011 being an important year. Um, so how and why did the movement change um, in and around 2011? Um, you know, in t as I said, in 2007, it it was difficult for the movement to um, to address the grievances in South Yemen, and uh, the regime was really brutal against the protesters. People were killed, uh, people were tortured, uh, taken to prison. So there was always a danger to go to protests. But in 2011, with the so-called Arab Spring or the Arab Spring protests, um, the whole situation changed because the regime suddenly was so busy with the protests in Sana'a and with so many other issues in the country and and uh, the, the regime began to, to, you know, to topple down. So... Um, this was this was the chance for uh, for the southern movement to become bigger, and I think also that a lot of people became mm, became more confident. They said, "Now is the time to go to the streets," and as more and more people went to the streets, you know, more people joined. So people told me, "Yeah, my neighbors went, and they said, just come with us.'" And I joined them, and then they went all together, the whole neighborhood, and. So it was really a time 
you know, people felt something is changing and this is not the time to 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 go out and to be you know to be strong and to say no we want uh we want uh the the regime of Ali Abdullah Saleh to you know to topple down and we want um democracy or we want our independent state like they said in the south so um yeah i think the whole situation i think not only in south yemen it's in the in the entire um Arab world in many countries that the situation changed and people just, you know, felt like this is now the moment to go out and protest. Makes sense. If the whole neighborhood's doing something, that definitely changes the risk calculus. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of continue the chronology for a second and then I want to kind of jump back into sort of one of the other bits of your book. So I'm Apologies to everyone for the jumping around chronologically, but I think this will make sense. Um, in addition to 2011, obviously the other really important year later on is uh, 2015, right? That's a pretty big change in Yemen. Um, how, what kind of, what happens and what is impacting the Southern movement at this point and then from then on? Uh, yeah, so tw- 2015 is the year when the... Um... Yemen war started or yeah actually it, it it already started earlier like um in 2014 when the Houthi movement um uh took over Sana'a and uh um Hadi president Hadi had to flee from Sana'a so uh yeah this was the time when the Houthi movement also uh Houthi movement, with the help of Ali Abdullah Saleh or his troops, uh, tried to go into um, Aden and the south to take over these areas. And uh, at that point, at the beginning of 2015, um, President Hadi was in Aden. He fled from Sana'a to Aden before he uh, sought refuge in uh, Saudi Arabia. And then in March uh, 2015, the uh, Saudi military coalition also entered the war um, to yeah, push back the, the Houthi advance into the south or in, into South Yemen. Um, and however, the as you know, the, the war is still going on in Yemen, unfortunately. And um, yeah, but the whole situation changed the southern movement uh, before it the war, the southern movement was a peaceful movement, um, or they said we are a peaceful movement. This means they never used um, weapons or uh, they didn't fight because they said we are peaceful and we are uh, killed by the regime of Ali Abdullah Saleh, but we do not uh, use weapons. However, when the the, the Houthis entered into Aden in 2015 with the help of the troops of Ali Abdullah Saleh. The situation changed. Uh, the southern movement activists uh, began to uh, defend themselves because um, the, the Houthis were really brutally um, they're using weapons against civilians in Aden, and there were, uh, yeah, fightings in the streets. And the first uh, three months of this war were mainly in Aden and surrounding areas. And um, yeah, and you know, the the army in South Yemen was, you know, was yeah lost with the 1994 war, so there was no army anymore. So people had to defend themselves. 
because at that point there was no army in South Yemen, there was no real army for the whole country anymore, so it was a difficult situation. So people took to the weapons and defend themselves against the Houthis. And this, yeah, this changed the whole movement because um, uh, suddenly there were different militias. Later on, these militias were um, were institutionalized as security forces, which are still working under the umbrella of the Saudi-led coalition. Um, and also, uh, there there was an institution institutionalization of political actors of the Southern movement. So. Uh, there was a Southern uh, Transitional Council that emerged in 2017 from the Southern Movement. So the um, STC, Southern Transitional Council, was not is not the only uh, um, yeah member of the Southern Movement, but is now the most institutionalized, which has a leadership council, different departments, foreign representations, and um, yeah, it's it's and it's aiming for a, a reestablishing uh, reestablishing an independent state in South Yemen. So, what we see from the war is a general fragmentation of Yemen. So we see different power centers in the country and uh, also a strengthening of yeah different powers in the country like the Southern Movement became more institutionalized with certain actors like the STC and um, yeah so it's really difficult now to go back to a unified Yemen as it was before 2011 yeah those are two pretty significant changes 2011 and then 2015 onwards um, so putting all of that back into a box <laughs> seems definitely not possible um, but we've been talking primarily about kind of the Southern movement to some extent as if it was sort of one agreed thing, right? We talked at the beginning about the different generations and sort of how they interact, which I think was fascinating. Um, but I also want to kind of give credit to what's in the book where you really do go into the inside of the movement as well and definitely don't represent it as some sort of monolithic thing where everyone magically agrees with each other. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of bring us a bit inside the Southern movement um, and maybe help us understand some of the kind of frictions within it or disagreements over re of interpretations of the past, etc. Um, kind of taking us in the Southern movement to help us understand, you know, the in internal aspects of it. Uh, yes, as you said, it's not a monolithic block. And of course, we, we have a lot of different voices. So the, the Southern movement, I think... It's the best to understand the Southern Movement not as a movement, but more like an umbrella with different peoples under this umbrella, different individuals, different groups, um, and um, different actors, uh, different politicians that also come from different fields, some from the Socialist Party, uh, etc. So this is uh, one issue, that people come from different uh, areas, but they are um, aiming for an independent state, but uh, on the and try to to come together to yeah to to reach this aim. But there is also the point that um, people asked themselves why we lost our state. So this is, I think, a very 
uh, important a very important question in South Yemen. Why uh, did we lost our state? So uh, what happened that uh, we joined unity or unification in 1990? And, um, and asking these questions, people always get back to 1986. This was... Um, a date, or in January uh, 1986, the, uh, there was a war in South Yemen, a short war of around two weeks. Uh, the Politburo, there was an attack on the Politburo, and um, there was one faction in the party, in the Socialist Party, that attacked the other party, and there were uh, disagreements over different um, topics. Uh, one of them was unification or unity with the north and um, people say that actually this war was the beginning of the dismantlement of the PDRY and the, the war gave the push for unity and um, this issue in, in 1986 this is an, a very important um, commemoration day until today in the Southern Movement, also in the Southern Transitional Council. So people uh, look back to this war and try to speak about it, what happened, why did this war happen, and uh, they try to overcome it by uh, reconciliation and um, forgiveness, as they say. So it's um, people think that because of this war, they lost their state and they have to find a common ground. They have to forgive each other in order to be able to establish a new future in an, indep in, in an independent state. So this is um, this historical key event. This is uh, very important to understand uh, politics in South Yemen. But as you said, there's also the generational uh, component. Young people who never witnessed 1986, for example, they um, they have other issues that, that are important for them, generational issues. They want to overcome uh, uh, the, the former uh, politicians' uh, policies, for example. They have other ideas. Um, uh, before the war started in 2015, there were questions of leadership there, because the Southern Movement was an umbrella movement, and the question was who is able to to uh, rule this this uh, movement, who is able to speak in the name of the movement, for example, in front of the international community. How can we uh, engage with the international community to to raise our issues, to raise our demand for independence? So. Um, this were a lot of, of, of yeah topics that this, yeah that were uh, dealt with inside the southern movement before the war. Um, some issues are nowadays not as important anymore as they were before 2015 because the situation in South Yemen changed with the Southern Transitional Council and uh, the entire political situation in the country changed uh, totally with the, the Houthis uh, ruling in mainly the most of the north of the country and uh, yeah so the situation is a bit different today but um, what I try to show in, in my book is that the grievances people have and the demands and claims they have, these are old grievances. So um, 
I show where they are coming from and I, I try to show um, how these uh, issues influence the present and how important they are to imagine the future. Hmm. I think that was one of the um, most like purely from a researcher's point of view, from someone, you know, a lot of us listening to this, um, we do research ourselves, we write things ourselves. And I think the way that you combined kind of what could be thought of as historical with what could be thought of as current um, and wove them all together without having sort of chapter one is on the 1980s and chapter five is on 2015, and that these were all constantly in conversation with each other, um, I think was really incredibly skillfully done um, like purely from a practical point of view, you made this all work really well. And that highlighted those connections that showed how it's not ancient history, even if so many people um, involved in the movement you talk about and you kind of show us their voices um, weren't alive then, it's still very relevant. Um, so I think that that was such an important thing to kind of understand and drive home that, you know, we may think of in theory kind of, oh, well, history is always real and that sort of thing. Um, but to see it in such a practical um, example, like in real life happening now, uh, was definitely a contribution uh, of the book, I think. So I'm, I thank you for kind of explaining how you wove those together. Thank um, you. I do want to kind of, we do need to sort of round off and close a little bit. Um, obviously, we've not been able to get into all of the detail that the book includes. So listeners, um, if you're interested in getting into all of the pieces and examples and uh, quotations from different actors involved, you know, please do uh, consider the, the whole book. Um, but I think, I hope we've been able to cover kind of the main points. Um, before I ask you about sort of your next project, um, is there anything else you want to uh, make listeners aware of in the book or anything you want to make sure we cover? Um, I think because you mentioned it now, I think it's um um, maybe interesting for people who are maybe interested in this um, volume or in this um, um, yeah book is that I tried to to um, yeah let people speak. So I have a lot of citations from my interviews, um, also longer citations uh, which I translated from Arabic into English. So I try to make it more um, lively to to let people speak, you know. And yeah, as you said, I try to use a lot of examples from the field, from schools, from textbooks. Um, I observed a lot in demonstrations. So, and I also used, for example, a lot of uh, song texts, which are used by the movement and poems and slogans. And I try to give also an insight into uh, this kind of uh, genre. So, I think our what I tried is to to do an ethnography of an independent struggle, and yeah, I hope um, it gives the reader the reader the chance to delve into this uh, topic to yeah to get more ideas about South Yemen because um, there is not so much literature current literature uh, on South Yemen so. Yeah, this was actually my wish to contribute to it, to, to give more insights into this part of the world. Well, I think you know, there's a lot of 
different things that you were doing and somehow you managed to do all of them. Um, so I think there's a lot there. Um, and it really does, especially I'm glad you mentioned kind of the different kinds of sources because it gives a really like well-rounded picture of kind of what it's like on the ground, right? We go into people's houses, we hear songs, we look at like public squares and schools. Um, and it kind of gives this idea that I think is often probably more reflective of reality. You know, independent struggles are not just a few super high level leaders um, debating at the UN, right? It is this kind of everyday community engaged thing. Um, and I think that that's a really helpful thing to show in all of these different ways to kind of build up the all around picture. Um, but with that said, you did a massive amount of work for this, obviously, uh, but it is over. The book is out. <laughs> So what are you working on now or next? Um, yeah, actually, it's it's not so easy to work on Yemen in these difficult uh, times because of the Yemen war. And um, unfortunately, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm currently not working on Yemen, but I'm still um, working at university and I have a position as a research coordinator working on institutional racism in Germany um, because I did my yeah my PhD in sociology so um, however I hope that one day I will get back to uh, to Yemen and um, yeah I think yeah it it will be really interesting in the future to see how things changed um, because of the war. Of course, I still, because I have family in South Yemen, of course, I'm still um, yeah, observing the whole situation and the politics and what is changing in the country. But um, yeah, I, I hope that I can do research in the future on South Yemen again to, to see, hopefully, after the war, uh, how the situation changed. And yeah, Let's see. Yeah, I mean, that certainly uh, would be a very interesting future project, um, but also your current work, I'm sure, is interesting and takes a lot of uh, time and energy and consideration as well. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and to listeners, a reminder, the book that we've been discussing is titled South Yemen's Independent Struggle, Generations of Resistance, published in 2021 by American University of Cairo Press. Um, Dr. Annalinda Amira Augustin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you.